In this show, we talk to the polymath Ashley Bradford, tech entrepreneur and philosopher who brings a riveting perspective about leadership. We talk about sense-making tools to help teams navigate uncertainty, lowering barriers to ensure everyone can have access to the best education, and the ethics around the rising power of digital technologies. How we can be better people in high states of uncertainty. He asks his teams the counterintuitive question, what ought we not to disrupt in product development? His love of meta-rationality, in other words, thinking about thinking, is a powerful route to being an evolving leader. Enjoy this mental workout. Hello and welcome to The Evolving Leader. Scott Allender here and with me as always, my co-host, whose name I'm not sure I actually pronounce correctly, so I just call him John. <laughs> Other people call him Mr. Gomes or some people call him the Silver Fox. Mr. Gomes, how are you feeling today? Well, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, so how are you feeling, Scott? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling excited because our guest today is one of my dearest friends in the world, Ashley Bradford. I've known Ashley since 2006 when we were both living in Long Beach, California. And today, Ashley is a New York-based executive at a public company with global oversight of technical product and architectural strategy across three international companies. Uh, he's founded and sold multiple successful companies in the B2B and B2C verticals. He's a tech expert. Balanced, though, by his studies in philosophy and religion, where he earned his master's degree from Yale. He's also a jazz pianist and nearly a master-level chess player. He tried to teach me to be a good chess player on multiple occasions and failed miserably. So he's a good chess player, but I'm not sure about the teaching because I don't want to take any ownership of my failure in that space. But anyway, Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Scott, it's great to hear your voice. And Jean, nice to meet you. Um, I've, I've really been uh, excited to hear the things that you've been doing on the podcast, and it's, uh, it's an honor to, to be on here and talk a little bit about a very mercuric and tricky, slippery subject of leadership. So thank you for the opportunity. Well, we're glad you're here. So if you could, uh, would you share just a little bit more about your story? How did you go from studying philosophy and religion at Yale to being a tech startup guy to a tech exec? Great question, and I'll try to I'll try to keep this one brief. But I think that there are a couple there are a couple threads that um, sort of led me along the way, and I think that that major one um, has been my love of narrative and storytelling and storytelling as as a means of sense making. Uh, and I think that that's both a sort of an interesting survival technique, and it's also something that um, you know the stories that we tell about ourselves that we we, we come to imagine. Uh, the roles that we come to imagine ourselves playing is critical. And so, so for me, it started with a love of literature. Literature was a very literal form of storytelling. I actually entered into undergrad studying jazz. So music is a form of community building and um, storytelling and, and jazz in particular with all of its improvisational elements and its, its sort of uniquely American heritage was just something that was compelling to me. Both of those led me into a philosophical study of aesthetics, which is the study of beauty. And I was really surprised to find that a lot of these sort of stodgy linear thinkers um, and Heidegger and some of these continental thinkers that are very rigid in their thinking um, throughout their entire published life on their deathbeds at the end of their life, Schopenhauer, Kant, Heidegger, Hegel, 
they died thinking about beauty. And there's something about that that uh, I think is transformative, and certainly it was for me. And so I switched my, my focus from a study of literature to a study of beauty. What makes storytelling beautiful? In grad school, I wanted to expand that question to what makes storytelling meaningful. Meaning is a form of beauty. There's a Venn diagram, but not necessarily a one-to-one overlap. And I started asking questions about, well, what area of literature could you study that has meaning baked in? And for me, that was eulogy. And eulogy, to, to me, captures both beauty and meaning, because what you are literally doing is telling a story in the remembrance of a person or of a place or of a geopolitical time. I think that you can construe the beat movement in America as a eulogiac movement, um, remembering maybe something that didn't even exist. Um, of course, there are more literal eulogies. And I think a lot of religious writings, particularly you know, in Judaism, are eulogiac as well. When you look at these uh, diasporaed people that are telling stories to sort of bridge back a community and a build. And so that was the, that was the bridge between philosophy, literature, and religious studies. Then comes computer science. So when I was at Yale, instead of uh, teaching, uh, I chose to work in the research library. And I was working, uh, having done a lot of philosophy and religion, required some language work. And so I was working on this team on a project called Orbis. And our stated purpose was to help a search algorithm understand and weigh human language. And what that meant is when a grad student was going in into the research library and trying to to write a complex uh, research phase, how could we teach the computer to understand actually what that meant? How do you weigh an adverb adverb versus an adjective versus a gerund versus a participle in, in producing accurate results? And I fell in love instantly at the power, the analytic power of a computer and an algorithm and a database on the creative power of language. And that just captured me. And so most of the work after that point that I started pursuing in technology was about taking um, weak signal data or unstructured data and applying frameworks of meaning onto that. Um, that led me into some forensics work. That led me certainly to the academy on, on doing building products that facilitated critique. So, so that's, that's the story. I, you know, I've cared enough about the tooling and the how to develop an aptitude. I had the um, luxury and the privilege of being able to audit computer science courses while I was at Yale to sort of underscore some of that. Um, and then of course, just the market as, as a trainer and teacher as well. Um, also in building companies, I've had the uh, amazing opportunity to uh, hire folks in that I could then learn tremendous amounts from. So all of those sort of built out the technical side of, um, of my capabilities. Man, we could we could do a, a whole episode on any one of your past studies and experiences. Can I jump in here? Um, because I'm fascinated here. I, I know that uh, you guys are friends and I can see why. Um, the The question I, I, that comes to mind for me here as I think about this really rich set of things, Ashley, that you are interested in and have done, how does this, how does this all play out, this philosophical aspect of your life in your work in a, in a kind of day-to-day world? How do, how do you think that has shaped how you behave, your leadership, your, the way that you are as an entrepreneur and so on? I'm just really fascinated to know how, how these things materially show up in your, your day-to-day dealings with people. Sure. I think a lot about sense-making 
models and categorization models and how people, even if all the information is right there on the table, can um, hide and reveal elements of what we might call truth or of sort of what the board looks like. And so I think it's, it's the more monolithic the team is, maybe the more laser focused you can be, but the less broad your vision can be. And the more diverse that team is, and sometimes the larger that team is, the more that you can see. Um, and how that team is designed and how those messages are passing back and forth and what sort of uh, uh, sense-making models that you apply to those all affect how you see the ground. And sometimes it's appropriate. Like, we know exactly what we're going to do. I talk a lot about the difference between a categorization model, which, is t which tends to be what we talk about when we're talking about any sort of business models. And that's where the framework precedes the data. Okay, here's the three models. And if you have this, you put it into this end of the machine and it comes out the other end in this certain fashion. But there, are, there is a world of sense-making models where the data precedes the framework. And I like to think about teams and leadership as applying sense-making models to those unique sets of resources that open up the ground in a different way. So let, let's just play with that for a moment. You, let's take the end of the spectrum that's dealing with a lot of uncertainty. A team's trying to solve a problem that's very you know, complex. I mean, it's a wicked problem that nobody really knows how to solve or even understand. And they have got a very short period of time. Let's assume that they're a diverse team and there's a mixture of all. What, just walk us through some of the, the kind of frameworks or models of sense-making that, that you uh, have played with and you think work. Sure. So one of my favorite is the Cinefin model, uh, which the UN uses for weak, uh, signal dete detection, uh, different naval uh, sort of warfare institutes use for weak signal detection, um, it was pioneered by Dave Snowden, and uh, effectively the idea is that there is um, simple, complex, and complicated types of problems. And the driver of a sense-making model is to start with the data and try to understand uh, where that data is best applied. And so if it's a simple model, what you're looking for is best practice. So then you would apply something that's a more common framework, like the Stacy matrix, for example. It's like, okay, this is a simple process. It's measurable. Um, not simple as in easy, but, but simple as in, you know, there's a, there's a clear direction forward. And that's when you start applying things like best practice. You might determine that this, based on this data, that there's, there's a lot of complexity here. And so we want to choose from a, a number of different types of frameworks that aren't best practice, but are good practice. And oftentimes when you have really senior folks that are trying to be squeezed into and sort of scientific thinkers or experts in their field, they're not interested in best practice because there might not be a best practice. And if you, if you say you need to do this this exact way, you're going to turn the majority of them off. Maybe the, the only person you're going to keep is the person that happens to be, you know, a major adherent of that one framework. And so the difference between good practice and best practice uh, is tremendous. And, and you can't start with that. You have to start with the data. I think then, then you have your really, you know, complex, you know, on the verge of chaotic sorts, sort of um, datas that you're trying to understand. And that's where you get emerging frameworks, and this is where somebody like a general, for example, might come in and say, you know, I don't know what framework to apply. The, the best practice is about, you know, street, it's about uh, tactics. It's about running something through. The um, good practice is about finding the subject matter expert that's going to know, you know, which practice to apply. The emergent practice, though, that comes out of this more chaotic world 
is where you have your general that comes in and says, okay, I want to see how the Navy would solve this. I want to see how the Green Berets would solve this. I want to see how a diplomat would solve this. And you bring in a host of advisors. Um, there's a really, I think it's a really interesting work by Sorensen, who was JFK's chief advisor in the White House, and it's called Decision Making in the White House. And it's all about how does a president make decisions that invariably are going to hurt some population and help some population. There's always, always that. And keep his or her view of the matter broad enough to not just shove everything down that same pipeline, that same framework that always outputs the same benefit for the same class of people or type of people or sector of the economy. And so that's just an example. So Cinefin uh, is Welch for Habitat, and it really looks at making decisions based on an ecology as opposed to a, um, a particular node or an individual in that economic. Can you give us an example? I'll, I'll hand back to Scott after this question because I'm hogging it here. But can no, you give please. us an example of, um, you know, where you've, where you've brought a team through that, you know, far end of the spectrum of, of complexity and you've really created a breakthrough. And, and just tell us a little bit of the story around that in terms of not just the, the tool and the processes that you use, but also the, what was the mindset that people needed to adopt to be able to step out of their, you know, desire for certainty or, you, you know, relying on their expertise? Sure. So um, there's a couple examples, but one I can give is, so within Critique It, which is a company I co-founded about 13 years ago now and ran for a dozen um, prior to selling it. And it was, we were particularly interested in the relationship, an academic way of saying it is the relationship between data and metadata. And a lot of annotation technologies uh, at that time we're creating marginalia, which is to say, I've got my main text and then over in the margin, I'm going to scribble something. It's the this, this scholarly way of doing things. And so there was this sort of broad chasm between the source text versus the commentary. Um, there was also a really uh, sing- single modality, which is if I'm commenting on text, I want to, uh, I need to use text to do that. So one of the first sort of pivots that we made I want to be able to apply voice, video, or text to this primary source of text. But the more important one, and the thing that sort of led us through the chaos of that is like, look, we're not going to get any exponential gains if we just like make a prettier interface. Uh, because there are a lot of, particularly in this, the, uh, as, as things are becoming digitized, there's a lot of tools for digital scholarship. New peer-reviewed journals, of course, uh, within the academy, outside in the sciences. One of the things that we started looking at is, well, what, what happens? Imagine that you have a historic artifact and you have a thinker um, that is going to become very renowned that leaves a little piece of marginalia. And, and that marginalia, that annotation, the thing that you thought was amplifying the text becomes the text itself. And we took that concept and sort of started by saying, how can, we, how can we eloquently use technology to flip these two and to see what other sorts of meaning comes out of, of a um, tradition of scholarship as a result of that? And when we were then taking that back to universities, there was a lot of conversations that we needed to have about how does, how, what, is the, what is the meta history here of how scholarship works? How is it that a student who is effectively somebody that's adding marginalia to the canon, becomes the expert, becomes then studied his or herself. And if you are effectively taking what used to be physical scholarship in your libraries and turning that into digital collections, 
and trying to make sure that that can last the, the multiple flips and generations of thinking, then we have to between what, it, what actually our definition of metadata versus data is. Um, so that, um, that required complete divergent thinking about how we're designing databases, foreign keys, indexes, um, everything about what is that initial universal ID of the thing that we're annotating, because the thing that we're annotating could very quickly become the annotation, depending on where that goes. <laughs> and, and building tools that allow that same level of mental agility is going to be critical. Like I, th I think of the evolution, you know, there's been, Scott, I think that we were talking about the book Sapiens. There's been a lot of books around Ger uh, Ger Gerald Diamond, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steels about how these sort of evolutions happen. Well, if we paint ourselves into the corner of being able to say, this is the meaning maker and this is the amplifier, and we start building our entire digital tooling around that, we are quite literally painting ourselves uh, into, a, into a thought corner that's going to be very hard to then re-articulate those assets. Um, so what felt like initially, like, hey, we need, to, we need to make a pretty interface and we need to use some technical elegance and make sure it's secure and scalable and et cetera, et cetera, really became into a conversation with some of our most profound um, universities and thinkers and data scientists about we are building tools that's reinforcing a model that actually pedagogically isn't, isn't accurate and more, moreover is very even hard to identify in nature, in the so, nature of our civilization. So I've got to ask, how do you get a team to, I mean, how do you structure a team to think about thinking about thinking? You know, because this meta-rationality mm -hmm. that you're talking about here. How do you stop it from just going into a, a kind of black hole of, you know, yeah, self-referential stuff? I mean, I think that's one of the beautiful things about um, our economy and business is that um, we we both at the same time need to um, amplify and support and encourage and align economic rewards uh, for innovation. At the same time, very quickly on that S curve of a product development or a J curve of a technolo technology development comes the move from how, what can we do to what ought we do to then um, where is, the, where is the market benefit? What you do is, what I've done, is use the fact that we have some really good thoughts about how things work. Having that atomic view of how things work allows us to reorganize those entities. Having a diverse team looking at those entities brings in a whole bunch of different perspectives and ideas. But then you have the ticking clock of payroll and the ticking clock of wanting to be the first mover and not sitting on that research too long. And so I think... When you, don't, when you stop viewing conflict as, oh, no, we're, we're misaligned, um, and I think this is a leadership principle as well, this is something's wrong, we're sick, the organism is sick because we're in conflict, and instead say we have these two mutually beneficial but competing desires. One is to understand at an atomic level as, as best we possibly can, and the other is we've got to get this to market. We've got to cross that chasm of um, sort of understanding how something works to understand how it benefits other people. Because fundamentally, that's when you have a technology that's going to be good or a product that's good for the world. But this is usually the part in the conversation where I go, so, Ashley, what else is going on? How's your mom? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell me a little bit then about 
the implications on the work that you do now. And in fact, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now. You, you're, you mentioned Critique It, which was sort of for all the things that you sort of did as, as a startup entrepreneur was kind of what I would say was your, your, your biggest win, your biggest sort of flagship kind of creation. Presently, um, I'm at a company called 2U Inc. Uh, we're a public company that effectively takes um, institutions online. And we talk a lot about disruption and a lot about um, when you're thinking about being emergent in a market. The question is often, well, what can we change? What can we change? One of the things that 2U is doing, and, and I really encourage my teams to do, is to keep focused on the question of, well, what shouldn't change or ought not change or can't change? Um, what ought we not disrupt? And so 2U's position on that is that the universities have a, have a solid and rightful place at the center of learning and that, that it is important to have a cadre of subject matter experts that have personal relationships with learners. And then that's really where a lot of beauty comes from. And as much as we can sort of mass produce courses and create videos and content and content, 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 it's actually important, critically important is the, the point of view of, of 2U to keep the university in the center of education. So that's an example of sort of looking, okay, so we now we know that we shouldn't change that. So then how do we build technology that optimizes to that, that solves for that? Um, so my role there is taking a look at what are the different and unique pedagogies that these different, you know, that the Oxfords, the Harvards, the Yales, um, uh, MITs bring, how do we, how do we capture and amplify elements of that? Um, and at the same time, be able to democratize that information in a more broad way so that a, um, a single parent in Wisconsin who has the credentials to get into Yale, but cannot disrupt his or her life to move to New Haven, Connecticut, can still have access to those thinkers, to that information, to that powerful network, um, to all of those things. And, and that's really the vision of what we're driving. A big conversation there is we talk a lot about online learning. Um, but I'm more interested right now, at least, in what is, instead of digital learning, what is, what is digital teaching? How do we teach online? Because learners are always learning in a context. And that context might not be at a desk beside me, but they're not actually learning online. You know, they don't disappear into the computer screen and then learn something and then, you know, pop back out yet. You know, we're, we're not there yet. Um, so they're learning in their context. But how are we teaching online? How are we teaching um, using new tooling? And again, let's make sure that that tooling that we're, we're developing doesn't harden and ossify an old paradigm such as, you know, data is data and metadata is data that we actually really need to make, make sure that that stays dynamic. What is the most gratifying part of this work for you? I'm just thinking back to our the start of this conversation and, and your trajectory to get to this moment in time. How does this speak to all of that? Yeah. Well, prior to Critique It, uh, I did a lot of work with a consultancy called Midio, and they built technology solutions, digital workflow solutions for, for our premier agencies, Secret Service, DOD, FBI, but also, um, you know, state and local uh, investigative entities as well. And the mission of that um, was one of the things that was happening in forensics at the time was that typical paper physical workflows, evidence lockers, were turning digital. Spectrometers were spitting out PDFs instead of, um, you know, printed pages. And CSIs were taking uh, Canon, uh, you know, digital SLRs to crime scenes as opposed to film. 
And so a lot of the work that we did uh, was to, to, to secure workflow, uh, make sure that, that there was robust collaboration on these digital assets that were probative, that could put someone in prison for the rest of their life. How do you use technology to secure that, that we're not having corrupt evidence going through or that something isn't leaking to the press and destroying someone's life? Um, you know, we did some work with LA coroners. Uh, you can imagine uh, I was uh, working that case when Michael Jackson died during his autopsy. It was our systems that those digital records were stored in. Imagine how terrible that would be should a paparazzi um, get access to one of those photos. And so a lot of the thinking around digital workflows and annotation came from some of the mental models I experienced in that space. And so moving that over to critique it, I felt like took work that we were doing when it was really already too, you know, unfortunately, um, the, the mother, the father, the citizen, the child is already on the table. You can't bring them back. And so, yeah, there's this question of justice, which is an important question, but it's too late for that individual. Education, it's not. And so for me in critique it, that was one element, is like taking this knowledge that came from a, a fairly macabre um, profession and bringing it into a place where there was still life. And not to, not to say anything negative about the amazing work that our investigative services and scientific service um, and, and officers are doing. That's important work. But particularly in my you know, materials analysis and toolmark analysis, it was, late, it was work that was doing post-mortem. It was too late. Um, I really do see education as a way of expanding those sets of lenses. The, the sad thing is that there are a lot of... Um, social and economic walls that, that stop people that have immense talent that could thrive at a prestigious university, the study um, of a brilliant teacher that's preventing them from getting there. There's not, I think we'd be kidding ourselves to say that there's full equity there. And I think by, by expanding this and making this, this data available and allowing um, more people to be able to apply into these systems, we really are democratizing that you know, there's always going to be the economics of it. And I think that's a whole nother discussion of how that's changing. But I see this work for me is stimulating and motivating because it's not too late. Uh, it's not trying to disrupt a system that has worked for so, so long for hundreds of years. You know, it's keeping the humans in the center. We're not trying to write um, machine learning models that understand where you're weak and then start proposing new curriculum for you. What we are doing is writing machine learning models that helps your faculty understand and analyze um, your assessment scores and analyze your movement through a curriculum so that he or she can interact with you in a more efficient way that drives student outcomes. Um, so to me, that's, that's critically important. And I've, I've been either in or adjacent to this industry for 12 years, 13 years. Um, and I think there's hope there. And I think there's beauty there. The, the ethical issues associated with with these really advanced technologies that uh, are increasingly dominating our lives are rising and so your your kind of philosophical and ethics um focus as a leader in any tech business has got to have to increase otherwise we're going to we're going to run into some sort of crisis and we've seen a number of those emerging recently what's your take on your responsibilities as a leader developing next gen technologies? I think that we were talking just a, a minute ago about um, disruption being so focused on what can we change and what ought to change. I think 
there's also a digital and leadership dexterity or resilience that says, well, what ought not? And what, what do we need to make sure doesn't change? I believe that fundamentally people are good. And I think that um, also fundamentally people are scared. You know, there's a lot of scary things out there that can get us. And so things like a title or economic success can make us feel more safe. And we trade a lot for that safety. I think a big part of leadership is not necessarily carte blanche saying eh, everything's going to be okay, but showing um, stability and compassion and um, empathy and sympathy in states of uncertainty. That's really what I like to focus on. It's, um, it's not getting up on the podium and saying, oh no, everything's going to be fine. I have no plan. I have no way of knowing that, but it is. But it is saying it is possible to be a good person and maybe even a better person in states of unknowing, in states of high risk, um, and that this is really where we shine. And this is where people really matter. Um, so if I can drive teams around that ethic, and if we can begin to understand that being afraid, being uncertain, doesn't mean we sell the farm. It doesn't mean that we sell our ethics for privacy so that we can write a machine learning model that makes us, you know, a billion dollars next year. That, that some of those trades aren't worth it. I think that models in the day-to-day sitting around the table and that expands to these larger economic implications. Who's inspiring you um, as a tech leader that's role modeling the kind of behaviors you're talking about? That's a good question. I mean, I think that there's a lot of folks that are second in command, that names that you might not know that are constantly putting the check on. Uh, I think a lot of tech leaders have significant dimensionality to the considerations that they need to make, which is to say they have a board of directors, they have shareholder meetings every quarter. Um, And oftentimes it's those lieutenants or or the the people that they're deputizing to that are less on the feeling the burn of that, that can say, well, wait a second, sir, wait a second, ma'am. This isn't the the right decision. I did recently at Scott's behest read a book by Bo Lotto. I think that he had a lot of really interesting things to say around sort of cognitive development and how we come to tolerate risk and discomfort. Uh, I think that some of the fundamental ideas that uh, Peter Thiel, by way of example, uh, talk about are sound. He talks about a lot about sort of courage in the light of um, leadership and technology development. But I think really, I look back um, to our sort of fundamental Western ethicists um, often for these, these sorts of balances. Um, you know, and I think that there's, there's tremendous power when you put enough people in a room and you embolden them to be able to speak their mind without fear of, you know, immediate beheadings, what you get is goodness out of that. Um, and the herd mentality in that respect isn't always bad. I think you can learn a lot from it. What's your single biggest leadership lesson so far? Um, I'm going to say one of the biggest lessons that I've learned so far. You know that experiment they do with kids where you you put a a, um, cupcake on the table and you say, hey, don't don't touch this cupcake, and then you leave. Yeah, the marshmallow test. Yes. They call it the marshmallow test because it's not cupcakes. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. Maybe there's, that's why there's been so many mixed results. It, it really needed to be uh, Marshmallow tests. 
So the idea is, you know, leaving this treat and then leaving and then seeing how long the student or the child or the whoever this might be, um, how long they can resist. I think that in leadership, um, credit is our marshmallow, getting credit for something. And the bigger that your team is and the more hands that are on something and really the more pressure as you move up sort of that executive and that leadership ladder the more pressure there is to perform, the, the, the more pressure there is to grab that marshmallow and say, this was me, this was my idea, I did all of this. But I think what, what really empowers teams is to try to keep your hands off of the marshmallow and acknowledge the, the incredible, at least in, I've, I've been lucky enough to be able to say this sincerely, the incredible contributions of the full team and to demote authority, to let more people make mm. decisions um, and to be that constant critical um, that critical gaze that says, like, I, I see what you're doing, um, but you could do this better. Um, and to sort of orchestrate and to make sure that we are encountering conflict in a healthy way that isn't off-putting, that isn't silencing, and that is open for everyone. Um, so one of my early mistakes was to say, oh, man, my team, I had the idea, my team may have executed everything, but I'm going to say it's my marshmallow because I need to get that credit. And more and more, I, and I don't always get it right. Sometimes I have to go back and say, you know what? I think I underrepresented my team's contribution on this project. You know, I, this is a series of redactions and, and retries uh, and revisions. Uh, but that's one of the, the biggest lessons that I've learned. And um, I think one of the things that can inspire a team member that might even not be performing is when he or she sees her colleagues getting credit for the good, hard, difficult work that they've done. Um, so that's it for me. And, and the larger the teams have been and the more pressure to perform that I've been feeling um, as, as um, you know, a senior leader in that organization, you know, it's, it's a great stress test because it gets harder and harder. And the more high profile the uh, project is, the more that you want to say, well, I, I, you know, play these critical roles here, 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 here. And look how nice, look at how good my team did. As opposed to just saying like, I'm not even going to present this you know, Tina or James or whoever, you do this, you take this one, you get, you get that gold star, you get to eat the marshmallow or cupcake, but apparently it's a marshmallow. <laughs> well, Ashley, um, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your insights. Um, it's been, it's been a pleasure. No, but it's a pleasure. It's really a pleasure. I'm I'm really excited about what you guys are doing, and um, I think that the types of questions that you're asking, the types of folks that you've had on, um, you know, it's it's important. It's an important reminder that um, you know leadership isn't just about sort of who has who has the closest access to the wheel, but who ought to, and and how do we become that person? Um, so I, I think it's critical what you're doing, and I just appreciate the uh, the time to talk here. Oh, I'm really pleased to meet you. Uh, that was really interesting. And I'll be thinking about it all over the weekend. Okay, Ashley, will you bring us home? The world is evolving. Are you? Are you?